are here at Cybos, the Excel Center London for episode 115 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Swiss Stock Exchange 6 launches digital asset prototype, No Yuan for Libra, and Bax launches at a snail's pace. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by, well, friend of the show and returning guest, Todd McDonald, co-founder and chief product officer of R3. How are you doing, friend of the show? I'm doing fantastic, and it's great to be back. Yeah, friend yeah. of the showing all around, chief product officer. When did that happen? Beginning of the year. Okay. Yeah, we like to switch it up at R3. It's, I think it's my seventh job since yeah. we started the company. <laughs> the- but- Co-founder life, I know yeah. how that goes. But we're not alone, of course. We are joined by Lex. I don't know how to say your last name. Usually, I actually don't don't even say my last name. I just go by Lex. Like I don't think Madonna. he knows how to say yeah. it either. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's Lex Oakland. It's Lex Oakland, global fintech lead at Consensus. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for being on the show. And of course, we're joined by Thomas Zeeb, head of securities and exchanges at the Six Group. Thomas, you guys had a big year. You must be a busy man at the moment. We're running around a lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but we'll lots, get of to, good, lots of good stuff going on. Uh, definitely. We'll get to that a little bit later. But the first story this week comes from Coindesk, and this is about Bact. And their exchange's Bitcoin futures see a slow start on the first day of trading. Uh, upon its launch, the Bact, of course, which is uh, backed by ICE, um, the parent of the New York Stock Exchange, their futures contract changed hands at $10,115. The number of contracts in the first hour stood at Five hours later, it was ten, and about twenty-eight contracts had been traded by sort of the middle of that day. I think so far, I saw this morning, uh, which is about twenty-four hours later, there are up to about seventy-five. This was a pretty slow start for what I think a lot of people, certainly in crypto Twitter, maybe even elsewhere, thought was going to be a bit of a game changer for Bitcoin entering the world of big financial services because they had physically settled Bitcoin. I mean, does this look slow to you, Todd, or does this look sort of like a product launch in, in cap markets? Probably a little bit of both. It's definitely slower than I'm sure that they were expecting. And especially if you consider, I've lost track, but I think this is sort of their fourth or fifth attempt at, at launching or, or the date where they were going to launch. So, so it's not that, it's not like this has been unexpected that this day would be coming. They've been building, in effect, building liquidity in the background, I'm, I imagine, for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, having that start, especially if you compare it to I believe what CME did when they launched, it's you know a fraction of that. On the other hand, you know, building liquidity, liquidity is, is kind of an art more than a science, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people that will say, yes, I would love that new product if you launch it, if you list it. And I'm sure Thomas can, can describe it in better detail than I can. But until you actually turn the lights on, you don't know who's going to show up at that party. Yeah, there's this weird, if you build it, they will come mentality on one side and on the other side. It's like everybody says, if you build it, they will come, but then nobody shows up sometimes. It's kind of weird, isn't it? But also, my understanding a couple of weeks back was that this was intended to be a soft launch. Like, this wasn't intended to be like the big bang. So maybe there's a a bit of prejudgment there. I mean, Thomas, I'd be interested in your experiences. You've seen many product launches in the world of securities and exchanges, I'm sure, throughout your career. Where does this track and and what are you hearing from, from your network on about it, if anything? Well, in the context of this one, it, it seems very slow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, our experience so far has been in the traditional markets, and there's already a whole series of liquidity pools, dark pools, market makers, and so on in the market. So you're kind of comparing apples and oranges, right? Yeah. What I am a bit surprised about, one of the things that we're spending a fair amount of time on prior to really going live with SDX is lining up 
MTF providers, dark pool mm. providers, liquidity market makers, and so on, because being part of a real exchange means you got to you got to have that ecosystem and infrastructure around. You got to have that ecosystem around you. I think this is a key point and links to what Tob was saying. I mean, Lex, as you look at this, you know, what are your observations? Do you think people had pinned their hopes a little bit on Backed for being the next big thing? So I think you need to take a point of view that's not just a capital markets infrastructure point of view. You know, there's lots and lots of ways in 2019 to buy and sell Bitcoin or to buy and sell Bitcoin futures. Instead, you got to think about the customer. Why do people actually want to buy this stuff? Where is it going to go? So if you want to ride the crypto rails, use decentralized exchanges or to use crypto native exchanges, you can do that. You can buy all sorts of these assets, right? There's thousands of altcoins on Ethereum that you could be using and, and figuring that out. But if you go into the land of traditional capital markets today, you have to answer the question of where do these end up? What asset allocation do they go into? Mm. Who's doing the software for asset allocation? Which turnkey asset management platform is using that software? Which and, financial and, advisor? And sorry if I jump in. What's the added value of doing it over this exchange than over the traditional ones, right? I think the packaging is super important. And the traditional financial industry, I think, has not found its existential answer to that question of how do we persuade our distribution force and how do we package this stuff up so it actually fits into people's financial planning in their lives. We can launch 20 more exchanges with the best brands on it. If we don't know why we're doing it, isn't going to make any impact. It's oh, really frustrating. You asked that why question, and that's a really smart question to ask. Damn it, yeah. It's interesting, though, that there is a bit of build-in that will come that seems to be have been around backed from its initial announcements. There's a lot of cash, a lot of big names riding on it, maybe even Starbucks getting involved to accept retail Bitcoin, and it seems like a, a 2015 story in 2019. And so the why question always that, that I hear from sort of the institutional world is, well, with the investor search for yield sort of continuing, something that looks volatile, and whether maybe money to be made still seems interesting. Traders going to trade, but that's not a great why. You know, it's, it's a why, but maybe not a great one. And I think maybe that's one of the challenges for Bact and, and, and not spending too much time, but just observing it through the press. It seemed like there were maybe two or three reasons why they were launching. So there are other efforts that are launching pure products available for the institutional investor to enter the market. So Bact is partly that, but they also, I think, are partly trying to bring the, the custody side of things mm-hmm. to it as well. And then you mentioned the Starbucks angle. I mean, is this a longer game of, of moving some of these corporates into using the Bitcoin ecosystem to manage their working capital better or manage their liabilities better for like the Starbucks cash or loyalty points that are, that are uh, on their balance sheet today? Those are all really great ideas, but to do two or three things at once potentially is a little bit tough to signal to the market of what's happening. Mm-hmm. When it comes down to it, you need that demand. So if the institutional money is not coming into Bitcoin, or potentially this would have been a sweet spot, say, 12, 15 months ago, yeah. they might have sort of missed that hype cycle. And when people say institutional, there's a big sort of spectrum there of what that actually means, right? So at the top-end institutionals, I would argue, probably wouldn't come near Bitcoin for, for quite some time. The bottom-end, your single-family offices, your multi-family offices, and then up to your hedge funds, and, and that space has been quite active in crypto for a number of years. Correct. And actually, the uh, the kind of the institutional-grade support for that in the last 18 months, as you say, has, mm-hmm. has really, really improved. Yep. It's almost like then 
so are you playing to where the market's moved or where you thought the market would grow to is an interesting right. question. But you also have to, you know, BACT is going to be here for a while. ICE has a long track record of, of success. And they also are overall a very successful company. And so they can, they can support something like BACT for a long time waiting for that demand to build up. It can be a lost leader for a little while. How do you feel like the, given we are at Cybos, how do you feel like the, the brokers are around this as well? You know, it, Do you feel like there was somebody not wanting to participate here that, that might have caused some of this drought? I, I think just to react to the earlier comments, I think the, you know, the retail market and the retail market including high net worth and mass affluent and the family offices has moved on a little bit in terms of what the what the opportunity is around blockchain-based assets. And so at Consensus, we work with a lot of large companies in the financial institution space that are thinking about this. And today, they're primarily thinking about digital assets or some sort of smart contract payment engine, or they're thinking about decentralized finance. And how do we connect into those themes on programmable blockchains? Whereas the kind of native digital assets like Bitcoin, I think they're an important part of an asset allocation, but you're thinking much more about you know, trading businesses rather than operating businesses. And that's that transition to building out operating infrastructure for real estate, for securities, for bonds, for structured products. It's a different brush. It's a different set of themes than you know, raw Bitcoin trading. Interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, any other points on this one? Otherwise, I'll move to the next story. I think one thing you can underestimate is, as Todd said, the, the custody component. Because with back being in the game for the long haul, that custody piece will become more important as the institutional investors start looking not just at Bitcoin but at other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. I, and I it think establishes that, some credibility. Yeah. You know? And you shouldn't underestimate the power of that credibility Absolutely. establishment. I mean, uh, so much of it is around confidence uh, in that will the liquidity be there? Will there be a set of rules if something goes wrong? And is there a custodian sitting behind all that? And there is a difference between trading and investing. So if you talk about the family office or those seeking exposure in something like Bitcoin, they're most likely not going to be that interested in a, you know, a one-day future that looks like spot Bitcoin because they're not in and out. They're buy and hold. So, so the custody uh, aspect of it is going to be extremely important, whether it's through backed or Fidelity or, yeah. or some of these other existing uh, infrastructure providers that are moving into this space. So I think potentially, you know, we always rush to judgment, but we'll see how it goes. You can almost say the volume doesn't matter at all. It's the fact that they're up and running and the custody is there and they have even one contract they support. That is already sort of the zero to one step. Yeah, but that's no fun. I, I know. I'm just, we, I'm have just to, we have to judge them in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and my thing is, if it were to not see growth, the stuff you see with decentralized exchanges, phenomenally experimental, cutting-edge stuff by the admission of probably everybody building it not intended for scale. But there are people who would say, oh, well, that's, that's amazing. The future has landed. And it's like, well, no, these things take a little bit of time to mature. But will they mature or will they just sit in the edges? You know, some things do stay at the fringes forever. Do you think BitTorrent was built for scale? Hmm. Right? So if you think about 2004 and how the record labels were trying to build the best DRM there could be so you couldn't play your DVD in Asia if you bought it in the UK. You know, that's sort of where we are, I think, in the blockchain world today. But protocols like BitTorrent, which allowed people to share peer-to-peer, it never designed for enterprise. And here we are in 2019, and everything from Spotify to Netflix to Amazon Video essentially runs on that protocol. So I think kind of the power of the open source stuff that's going on, even though it looks like a toy and kind of weird today, 
we certainly feel excited about it. I think it looks like a toy, and it looks scary, not just weird. And I think actually, once it gets repackaged, then things get things get different. For sure. And that repackaging is definitely ongoing. Although, speaking of scary, um, <laughs> story comes from Reuters. Uh, apparently, there'll be no Chinese yuan in uh, the basket underpinning Facebook's Libra. And this, of course, comes from Der Spiegel, the uh, German publication. Libra have apparently sort of spoken to a number of policymakers around the world about the basket of currencies that would back their Libra coin. Libra will be backed by a basket of US dollar, euro, yen, sterling, and the Singapore dollar, mm-hmm. interestingly, which I believe is already pegged to the US dollar. But it excludes China's yuan. The exclusion of the Chinese currency could help smooth the planned digital currencies path in the United States, where officials have raised concerns about the yuan's growing stature and as a reserve currency. Uh, and apparently the dollar would make up 50% of the basket, followed by the euro with 18%, yen with 14%, the British pound with 11%, and the Singapore dollar with 7%. I mean, you can see what they're trying to do here, but I guess uh, the fact that this came out of Der Spiegel sort of speaks to the story from last week, that the the Franco-German position on on Facebook is probably not too rosy at the moment. I was wondering if you're going to say, is uh, Libra going to be able to land the plane uh, as we're right next to the airport here? I I, I don't know if this is... They're trying to figure out how they could fit in between where they started from, which was, in effect, what it seems like ask for forgiveness, not permission. Yeah. And now they're inching a little bit more into this compliance zone with the regulators, but it's difficult. So from from my understanding of where they started from, they, they were very pointedly not looking to do a dollar stablecoin. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be exporting, in effect, U.S. dollar to the emerging markets where they wanted to really focus the early adoption of, of Libra. Mm-hmm. But obviously it's been, it's been very difficult to, to do all the things they're trying to do at once. And going back to the, to the basket as well, they're also facing all of a sudden a reversal back into a zero to negative interest rate world. If you look at what was the reason for, for companies to invest in Libra, mm-hmm. it was the net interest margin that yep. they would be earning. So That's why to, you'd pay your $10 million to get access to the reserve. Yeah, so you theory. need to have a basket that potentially can earn you some interest. But you also don't want to get into sort of the geopolitical Problems game. that come with that. And it's clear that they have turned off a large part of the regulatory and central bank community. Mm-hmm. And potentially, interestingly, this might be a way, this might be a new strategy for them to provide uh, potentially Libra as an antidote to Remembi being a reserve currency. It feels like that's been the pivot on, on the optics side, hasn't it? In that uh, the, there's been announcements or, or rumoured announcements by PBOC that there are real concerns about Facebook's Libra being there to push the dollarization and, and to promote the dollar. So we're in sort of that geopolitical landscape with this, with sort of Facebook in the middle of it, from one side of the world maybe looking like it's a coordinated dance between the administration and Facebook and from the actors involved in Facebook and the administration, probably not a coordinated dance at all. But but you can see how that looks from the other side of the world. I mean, what was your take on this, Lex? I've got two frames on Libra. And broadly speaking, I mean, I think it's, it's great for our industry because it gives a, a tangible target for, I'll say, politicians to engage with mm-hmm. uh, rather than sort of a vacuous mist of decentralized entrepreneurs. So in that way, it's been pushing the conversation forward in a really good way. But the two frames are, you know, number one, Facebook is, if you get to Facebook size, right, which is like three and a half countries together, if you get to Facebook size, what is it that you do next to create growth? And the answer for Facebook has actually been really straightforward. It's never been about innovation. It's been about copying. Since, you know, 2008, 
what they've done really, really well is they've curated their product suite, either by buying or copying. Mm -hmm. So they bought Newsfeed. They didn't build it. They bought Instagram. They didn't build it. They tried to buy Snapchat. They couldn't, so they copied it and, you know, and built it. And so at the level of where they are today, the only real comparison you can, you can find, which is strictly better than Facebook, are the, the Asian super apps. Mm-hmm. Right? So WeChat's got 800 million people on it that use it for transportation, for banking, for buying toilet paper, and for streaming their videos. You can't do at least three of those things on Facebook. So you know, the next logical thing, I think, is to build money into Facebook through this approach. And I think, for sure, you can, you can layer on the geopolitics of the dollar versus the Chinese currency, and there's a lot there. But I think more simply is just that their competition is out in China, because mm-hmm. uh, those companies are so powerful. Well, and those companies are also moving into, out of China into other markets like Africa, like Southeast Asia, where Facebook already has a presence. So there it's possibly more important than it is in the U.S. that they have, have a, at least an equivalent proposition that suits the, the need of the people in that market. The Borg Cube is very good at synthesizing more yeah. Borg, uh, yeah. for sure. Uh-huh. I think the Star Trek reference for those of you that didn't get it. <laughs> B-O-R-G, uh, the Borg. So the, the second framing is, um, I think we're in a really interesting place in the U.S. If I were to run a bank or a broker-dealer or a wealth manager, I would be launching a stablecoin today. I think we're going to see 10,000 stablecoins in the U.S., right? So if J.P. Morgan gets to have one, and then UBS and Finality get to have one, and now Wells Fargo gets to have one, and even super innovative companies like Franklin Templeton get to have one as a money market fund, there's a good 25,000 financial institutions that should be thinking about how to tokenize their money market instruments or commercial paper and essentially launching stablecoins. So I do think there's a window for somebody like a Facebook to figure this out until the financial industry starts to, to look like they figured it out as well. Interesting. I don't understand why they promised the market they would do a multi-currency stablecoin. They made it so hard on themselves. I mean, this is they have so many uh, fronts to fight on, and a multi-currency stablecoin is extremely difficult, not only to figure out and launch what's the right ratio, but then to manage as the buyer and seller of last resort. So I think going back it's to the, the Windows phone. No, yeah. it's the Facebook phone. Do you remember when they tried <laughs> yeah. to do a phone? Yeah, and it, ben, I guess I agree with Lex on the, on the stablecoin side. I think we're, in a lot of ways, Libra has done more business development for stablecoins in the central bank community than, than we could have done over four to five years. And indeed, there is something about the cat amongst the pigeons here that's, that's, that's really powerful and the optics of it making everybody focus on it. And, and again, the fear and the, the confidence question that really mm. comes to the core of, of the potentially uh, systemically important role that Libra yeah. would have if it did operate at scale. There's something interesting as well to your point about uh, possibly tech utopianism that said if we build this, it would solve a problem for the world and actually the world has moved on and the optics around that have moved on and, and outside of that bubble it wasn't really clear. Uh, I think Facebook, if they were to be on this podcast, would probably point out something like, actually, this isn't a Facebook thing, it's a Libra thing. Mm-hmm. But the, again, optically, I think that message just hasn't landed at all. And now it's about making sure that you know, if you were in that position, what do you pivot it to? And, and this sort of like, actually, we're going to work with central banks, here are the currencies, here's how we make it work, is an interesting place to be. Have you invited Libra Association on yet to the podcast? Uh, yeah. Maybe, is this a, an invite right now? Hey, get in touch, get involved. But wouldn't it potentially make more sense to start in a single jurisdiction with a single currency zone and then be able to bootstrap either a single, you know, a single entity, 
like we're seeing in the U.S. or a multi bank or multi-financial institution entity my, my, to do this? It's interesting to me that this feels like it lacks startup DNA. One of the things we do with clients quite often is figure out what's the smallest thing I can do to get the maximum result. There are no doubt, in fact, I'm aware of it through friends in Gates Foundation and elsewhere, that people are using WhatsApp and Facebook informally to manage money just by sending each other mm-hmm. messages and yeah. then managing cash on the back end. So I'm pretty sure Facebook is seeing that on, the, on their platform as well. So they were probably trying to solve a problem for those people. But why not just beta test something in closed groups, show that, get the little ballyhoo for this cool little thing that people did, create some open source software, push it into the open source, and then figure out Libra and, and the association that needs to happen later. It's almost like by announcing it and trying to get all of these big logos behind it, you made it scary. But actually, if it was just out there in the open source and and people were picking up the tools and using them, it would be a very different conversation. I think it goes back to they have to have big ambition. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, like if you look at WeChat and Ant Financial, the, the curves on money movement and money market funds there are within two, three years, you know, multiple billions of dollars in value, right? So if you're thinking of yourself as I can just copy Snapchat or I can just copy WeChat, why would you, you know, why would you start small? But I guess you can't. But the, the, the Chinese example is like the Galapagos with the one-party state. You always have a regulatory framework in that you are, you must collaborate with the banks. And if you look at how Ant Financial and uh, WeChat and Tencent yes. work with the banks, there's sort of massaging that goes on behind the scenes to ensure that everything looks great uh, above the surface. You don't have that with all of the regulatory jurisdictions that Facebook operates across. But doesn't Facebook elect our presidents anyway? Uh, well, <laughs> no, that's, so, so let unintentionally. Let me, let me, let me let me walk back a little bit, which is to say, like, what should they do now, right? Yeah. And I think the answer that we've seen in the blockchain world that's worked is open source. Mm-hmm. I mean, the answer is get as many people. But to Libra be... is open source. Yeah, but is it? If you have to pay ten million bucks to be a node, mm-hmm. I mean, is that really open in the same way that you know Ethereum or or Bitcoin or other public chains are open? So I think without that massive community involvement and that ability for people to own value in some form of token or some sort of participatory way, I think it's really going to be tough to get the type of innovation and participation that you have on more open networks where people are building thousands of developers on Ethereum writing decentralized finance software every day. The question to my mind, though, is what is the scary bit, right? Is it the number of markets? They could easily have pegged it to the euro, which is a fudge in and of itself, Mm -hmm. right? The element that gets the the politicians and the central banks and so on up in arms is, is I don't think, the scope of the, of the basket or anything like that. It's the fact that if you want to have a payment system, a true payment system rather than, than investments and so on, then they're going to jump on the whole issue of anti-money laundering. How do you ensure that you've got auditability? Do you have the appropriate regulation around maintaining accounts and all that kind of good stuff? That's the bit that, irrespective of what you peg it against or whether you use some other kind of asset as a base, you're still going to have the existing structures get very concerned about a payment system that is outside of cross, the regulated Massively cross-border right? payments. So Correct. Outside, exactly. outside the reach of that regulatory. That's, what's that's, that's what worries them. What, what's interesting is if you were to look at um, crypto as an example, Bitcoin, Ethereum are all in this space now where people understand that the on-off ramp is the bit that I need to regulate because the network itself is decentralized. Whereas actually Libra is an association, so there's a throat to choke. 
And therefore, that organization, which is still being set up, was not answering the questions particularly quickly, or, and it didn't have real clarity about, you know, if you're a Visa or a MasterCard, you have your rules, your scheme sure. rules figured out around anti-money laundering well ahead of time when you go and prep the regulator. Libra was like, hey, yeah, we're going to set up this association, but the members will figure out how the governance works. And they were like, yeah, but that's the body that's in control of ML across that's all of it, it, and it coordinates all the actors. I think there was almost an expectation that because, well, you know, the endpoints are what gets regulated in crypto, this is crypto. But it's like, yes, it would be like crypto if there was a Bitcoin foundation that in theory could control the network, which we know it can't. And same with the Ethereum Foundation. It has no control over the, the future development of Ethereum. It's pulled in different direction by a whole network of forces. All right, interesting stuff. I'm going to do the ad read. It's time for My a show. My favorite part of the show. It is. It's always friend of the show, Todd McDonald's. Shout out to you, and you're right here. Any plans on 23rd or 24th of October, Todd? I think that's Corticon. I believe it is. Corticon 2019 in London, one of the top blockchain events in the world. That's right. The whole entire world. In the world. In the world. Uh, hosted by your good selves at R3, mm-hmm. Corticon. Once a year event brings together more than 800 leaders, technologists, and quarter developers from various industries around the world uh, for two days of interactive sessions, use case presentations, tech talks, panels, and more. You have both Dev Day and Biz Day. Uh, so Dev Day's Day one and biz day is day two. Uh, registration's free. Yeah, the low, low price of free. That's right. A very open community. Uh, free 99. That's my yeah. favorite price. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> sign up now. Space is limited. Head over to r3.com forward slash Cordicon for more info. See you there. Yes, I'll definitely be there. All right. And I'm the show. host of day two. So oh, yeah, there you go. If you want a little some added bonus. The McDonaldson's is happening. Yes. That's, that's what we like. On with the show. Uh, next story comes from Coindesk, and this is about the Swiss Stock Exchange, apparently. Six have launched a digital asset prototype. Prototype platform launched under its digital asset subsidiary, subsidiary even. Six Digital Exchange, SDX, is expected to see more functionality added as it approaches full launch, stated for Q4 2020. Platform, as it stands, is aimed to showcase the future of financial markets. But I mean... Probably doesn't make any sense me explaining what it does. We've got Thomas right here. Can you tell us more about the announcement? Sure. I mean, what does SIX do? We run the stock exchange, we run the central counterparty and the, and the central depository. So we've already got a silo which doesn't exist in a lot of other markets mm-hmm. altogether. They're separated today. There are Chinese walls and everything between them. What we've done with SDX is, in parallel to that, create a new entity which collapses those various functions together because we looked at it and said it makes no sense to try and automate the old processes with blockchain new technology. It's a waste of time. There's no yeah, business yeah, yeah. case in it. it. You can blow your brains out on, on, on trying Digitizing, to find a way to Digitizing, right? Like it's if I take a paper process and try and put some digital yeah. on it, it's, it's not going to go any faster. All you end up with is dot matrix printer spewing out a lot of paper. Right? Uh, yeah, it's like and, putting a rocket on your cat. It's, yeah. it's just not feasible. Tons of that. That's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Good meme, though. Good yeah. point. So what does SDX do? We're pulling together the trading. In many cases, we can get rid of the need for a central counterparty altogether. Uh-huh. And then you have instant settlement and and digital custody behind that. Now, what we've done is separate the trading and the the post-trading piece because in terms, and it comes back to the point earlier about liquidity, we said, at least for the time being, keep a centralized trading order book the way we have it in the traditional world. Uh So we're using a NASDAQ platform for that just because you want to have your liquidity concentrated. It's hard enough to ensure you have liquidity. So... As soon as the matching is done on the trade, 
it goes into the blockchain, and then will get settled and custodized in, in the digital wallet. That prototype is, is what we launched together with opening up our lab last week to allow our clients to start, start working with it. What we're doing in parallel is building all of the other processes around that, around risk management, money yeah. laundering, you know, transaction monitoring, all that kind of stuff, right? So that it actually meets the needs of a financial market infrastructure for the future. Wow. And right? that's I, can't afford, I can't afford to be Uber and just throw it out there and hope it works, right? Nope. You're, you're regulated work. to a standard, in many cases, higher than, than a lot of the banks and, yeah. and the people That's you serve. It. A systemically important financial market infrastructure provider uh, is the high watermark in terms of, of regulation. So all of that would have to, have to come together. But I guess I've got to ask the why question. Moving from digitizing a paper process to truly digital with the benefits of modern technology, what problem is that solving? Because you talk about an instant settlement. Does everybody want instant settlement? Is it reducing cost? Is it creating new asset classes? Is it dematerializing alternatives? Where's the, where's the sweet spot, do you think? There's a couple of elements to that. The, the long-term view is, yes, it's going to reduce cost dramatically, uh-huh. but it's only going to do that once financial market intermediaries, the banks, insurance companies, pension funds, everyone else is in a position to actually take advantage of of booking digital uh, assets. So that's going to take, we reckon, between five and ten years. Uh I'd love it to be quicker, but, you know, banks have got end-of-life legacy platforms they've got to get rid of. Same with pension schemes, insurance companies. And that's running billions, if not trillions of dollars of... It's uh, huge. ...through it on a daily basis. It's huge. So once that gets replaced, we truly believe that a digital trading and post-trade model is going to completely replace the existing structures. And by replacing the existing structures, it also makes the national boundaries of today's national structures irrelevant. Uh So wherever you have your your various nodes and partners connected to your chain – that's where the trading is going to take place. That's it's powerful. not going to matter. That's powerful right? because it means you can have collateral at multiple venues. Absolutely. You can start to get towards the dream of open access. You yeah. can start to really do some interesting things. Yeah, I mean, in parallel, we made an announcement this week in the old world about a custody agnostic collateral cockpit, which can manage collateral across any number of custodians. That obviously is with, in the back of our minds, look at the digital as well as the, the traditional world, right? You've got to cover there's something both. interesting for, I think, any corporate or incumbent provider here about, you know, sort of build your prototype of the future, understand it, understand that it might take some time for your clients to come to it, but then everything you're doing day to day, you've got a target for, for what you're trying to hit, and it gives you Absolutely. that North Star, something really powerful. And so, you know, where's the real benefit going to come on the cost side is when I can start tokenizing Novartis, Nestle, Ross shares and shut down the old structure. In the meantime, there is a short-term benefit to clients as we bring on new asset classes. To Lex's point earlier, it's not about purely cryptocurrencies and stuff. It's digital assets in general. And we believe that that digitalization of assets is unstoppable. That's happening, and it's going to That explosion growing. of different new types of assets, natively digital or digitized real world, is, is hugely exciting to me because everything from, you, know, you were talking about uh, air miles and points and loyalty right through to uh, you know, stuff inside of video games. There's, there's that whole sure. digital art space that's really powerful, physical art space and ownership. There's, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, Lex, how do you reflect on, on movements like this? Sure, absolutely. So I'll... 
give the the framing from my consensus hat, right? So I, I run a business called Codify within consensus, and we build software to enable exactly what you know what you're describing for financial institutions. There's kind of a maturity curve that we see across digital assets. And I think digital assets are a point on this growing curve. So the very first step that we saw you know, 2014, 2015 was the enterprise blockchain story. So just getting industries to come together and say, we're going to have shared data standards. We're going to have, oh yeah, we're going to get our information, you know, just account information to look the same way. Once you have data standards, you can start to mutualize workflows, right? So account opening or money movement or how you write trading rebalancing software, you can start leveraging that between consortia. And then once you have that software, you want to apply it to something, and that's where the tokens come in. That's where the digital assets come in, right? So the first version of the token is to kind of have just a little bit of the information about the outside world. It's kind of like a hyperlink to the outside world. You know, the 1% of the information is the token, and the rest, all the legal paper, all the human processes are outside. But then over time, what happens is that more and more of that information goes into the digital asset. So today we're just referring to paper. Tomorrow we're having dividends and stock splits happening within the digital asset itself. And then over time, all the software that used to apply externally to the, to the asset, to the security, to the bond, to the piece of real estate, things like rebalancing or financial planning or risk assessment or the collateral piece or all the engines that were external those are all software that are moving into the blockchain network themselves, right? Which is why we're so excited about programmable networks and blockchains is that you're going to have rails that are intelligent and securities that are smart and intelligent to the point where you get into what today looks like decentralized finance, where you have (laughs) machines, financial machines, that manufacture different financial products, whether they're lending products, whether they are investing venture products, whether they are traditional equities and real estate and the exciting, cool thing is that when we're in that world, it all is on the same underlying standards and rails, even though it might tilt in different ways, but it will be you know, traded on on the six exchange, it will be traded on other exchanges, and it will be whether venture capital or real estate or other asset classes, they will be interoperable. That's powerful. I love that journey from sort of the 1% and most of it's external into something that looks like decentralized finance. Because a bit like you were saying earlier, uh, decentralized finance to the financier at the moment looks really scary. It looks, there's, there's a lot of objectionable things about the way it would operate if it ran at scale. But actually, if you take the lessons from that and you see it as a North Star, it, it gets quite different. Todd, any thoughts on this before I move? The main thing for me is that I, I find the SDX project incredibly exciting for many reasons. Obviously, one of the exciting points Chill is, it, man. is it is <laughs> built on Corda, and we've been working what? with the SDX team uh, since the beginning of the year. <laughs> Secondly, I think you mentioned before about bringing a different sort of startup mentality and the way that they're executing this as much of a clean sheet as possible. They have a new team, new offices. They're trying to you know, set milestones and MVPs as they, as they go and not boil the ocean all up front. So it's some infrastructure projects have that tendency to do that. Yes. Uh, and I think the last aspect of it that I wanted to point out is because I think when Tom mentioned the unique aspect that SIX has where it is the entire life cycle. So... You, have yeah, you wouldn't from, get that in the U.S., yeah, for instance. From issu- issuance, custody, redemption. It's much more difficult. Yeah. Much more difficult. And also, uh, I think the longer-term vision of true delivery versus payment that is atomic and all within one network, because what SDX has, has the uh, ability to do long-term is to have you know, Novartis share and digital Swiss francs being exchanged and the Swiss francs being, in effect, redeemed or burned back in to, to fiat. 
Because that's the other thing we do, right? We operate the central bank payment system. Right? <laughs> he sort of buried the lead on that one. Yeah, it's kind of handy, right? <laughs> See, it's know. incredible. Yeah. It's, it, so, in, because you sound like you're a little bit excited. Tom. No, because well, you mentioned before is the, the biggest thing for all of us is we need to get things live, prove the value. Yes. Right. And we've been at this a while for R three, and, and the first you know the first couple of years, people are getting around. What can we do? And then people got bored, and nothing's going live. Then we settled on initially these data data reconciliation use cases, which are exciting. You can see where the cost saves are. The next wave are these digital asset use cases, and we're seeing them. We're at Cybos here with, with SDX and HQLX and all these other things that the consensus team is working on. Digital assets are going to happen. And then the next phase on that, if you have a digital asset, you, you would like to pay for it with digital value. So you would want to have an on-chain settlement token to be able to exchange true delivery versus payment that is recognized as a settled trade yep. by the regulators. Central bank money. Which is, which is what a lot of banks yeah. are pushing out. Of course, the uh, Finality guys and others have been pushing in that direction. So, so shout out to those guys and, and uh, what they've been up to. Um, All of but, that will start converging over the next few years. And this was going to be my point. That convergence thesis, actually, I think, was originally um, something I picked up from Jeremy Miller at Consensus, which is he was saying this in 2015, that the decentralized world and the centralized world will converge in the coming decade. And, it, and, and we can really see that starting to happen. This story comes from Coindesk and it's our last one this week. Wells Fargo's stablecoin is apparently faster and cheaper than Swift. Using digital cash would allow the bank to move funds 20 hours a day up from the current nine, uh, six to nine hours, five days a week when it relies on wire transfers and systems like Swift. You know, like, I know you were on the show this week, but you did put out a lot of news because it's Cybos, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, that's I mean, true. I, and I also know you're a sponsor, but you put out a lot of news because it's Cybos. We didn't put out the news, uh, the folks building on quarter well, the news. Yes, they did. What's going on behind this? How is this different to something like JPM coin, for instance? So Wells Fargo has taken taken a different approach. The banks overall, they have a lot of different approaches to how they're trying to roll out uh, the use of DLT, how they how they bring innovation to their to their firms. So in the Wells case, I think it's really interesting where they said, okay, we're involved in some of these networks, consortia, these other efforts, but we also want to focus on can we solve a problem for ourselves that mm-hmm. within so the four walls of Wells Fargo globally, they identified a handful of problems that they would, they thought that DLT and with Corda they could solve. And the first one is this internal book transfer uh, use case. So in effect, they were going out to Swift and back in in order to... Just to, to go to another country. Yes, with, within the Wells Fargo universe, so potentially you know, different balance sheets and all, but still under the control of the parent. What their approach has been is, that can we launch this internal DLT power network, quarter network, and launch an initial application that proves value to the business lines? Yeah. So it's not just an innovation project that's foisted upon the business, yeah. because that will be rejected by the host every time. And it's proving value in the short term, and it's building for the future. Which... I'm cool with, but this is like JPM coin, two, what they were doing two years ago, right? I mean, what's, is there something new here or is there something materially different? For me, what's, what is interesting, I think Lex mentioned it before, is that you know, stable coins here is, is kind of a meme, right? So there's different, stable coins can be defined differently depending on who you talk to. There's purists and this is, this, they are, you know, Wells is in effect creating and then redeeming a digital representation of fiat, right? So it is a sort of a, like, it's like a fruit fly of a stable coin kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important that another U.S. institution is doing it. That's I think true. both the JPM 
uh, coin and what Wells Fargo is doing is these are you're going to start to see this is just the beginning, I believe. Right. Um, and so for you, yeah. it's more about the macro trend here that's that's compelling. And actually, to have uh, Wells Fargo, one of the one of the largest kind of transaction banks in the world by by float and flow business, uh, really significant institutional player, and most of the corporates and most of the institutions end up connecting through to them at some point. They could, if they moved in this direction, be really significant, I suppose. I, and I think it's significant in its own right, though. I, and also, if you, I, I don't, I'm not that close to what JPM Coin is doing today outside of what we've know outside. So this is going to continue. The large institutions will continue to move in. I also think it's because they understand the technology, what it's good for, what it isn't good for, and what the use cases they can focus on. So I'm going to throw this at you, Lex, because this to me, and I hate to be cynical, but looks like just another prototype. Like th- there wasn't a narrative there about how, yeah. how this is you know, the strategy of the organization for the next five years. This feels like they did it, so we'll do it. I mean, I, I have to be that guy. Yeah, no, I mean... Going back to the earlier point, I do think if you're any financial institution today, you should be looking at figuring out how to tokenize your money markets, your, your cash sweeps, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, whether it's quarter or consensus or fabric, there's great providers out there or the existing stable coins from Gemini and the others. There's ways to do this, and I don't think we know kind of what the final answer is. But maybe what I'll say is think about an analogy, right? So Google's got a thing for artificial intelligence, as you know, supposedly open source. And they've been working on it for a while, and it's been burning a ton of cash. And one of the first commercial use cases they had was to use AI to optimize the energy burn of their server farms. And they reduced the cost of their server farms, which, by the way, is a spectacularly ridiculous cost, by 40%. So you could also say, that's not sexy, it's just Google and some server farms. And it's the same thing for Wells, right? If money movement costs 40% less, that is spectacular. And then you take the learnings from that, you plug it back into TensorFlow or you know, any the open source AI stuff, and next thing you know, we've got deep fakes of um, Brad Pitt <laughs> in, uh, in our movies or, or uh, Princess Leia back in, in Star Wars, things of that nature. So I think we're going to see the consumer benefit a couple of years out these enterprise use cases that are proving the idea are really important. And I think, going back to your convergence point, we're going to see this stuff interact with all of the innovation on the broader public chains, and it's a really interesting world. And there's no downside to learning. There's another piece following up on on, on Todd's point. I think we are just at the start. One of the use cases that, that we've been approached on by a couple of banks is can they piggyback on our platform to do, for instance, trade finance and put their stablecoin through their own network? Oh. So it's not even trading. It's not custody. It's using the existing infrastructure that's there because they trust the integrity of the platform to do other activities around their global business that has actually nothing to do with trading and settlement per se. And given we're at Cybos this week and given so many people are seeing kind of what the future of financial services should look like and they're sort of bumping into their peers, I think it's quite timely that there's, there's things like this that are happening across different organizations and, and we, we are seeing that convergence. So then it would make sense that you at least understand the technology better. You've had a go at it, you've demonstrated that to your P&L owners and then you can stay with credibility how we're going to move forward into this new, new world. I'm going to cover the story 
stories we didn't have time to cover, and then we've got Twitter of the Week, because this has been a rapid-fire conversation, and yep. we're nearly out of time. So stories we didn't have time to cover, uh, the, coming from the block, Coinbase is considering 17 new token listings, apparently. The block also self-described inventor of the initial coin offering, nabbed by Feds in alleged crypto extortion scheme. Who would have thought? Uh, yeah, surprise, surprise. Go read that one, people. There's going to be books written about it. Story from the CNBC. The SEC chairman says that he doesn't see Bitcoin trading on a major exchange until it's, quote, better regulated. Interesting choice of terms. But then also headlines never get you nuance. Uh, ZeroHedge.com, Google's quantum supremacy to render all cryptocurrency and military secrets breakable. Hyperbole much? Game over. (laughs) Hello, Hyperbole. Nice to meet you. FT Alphaville. Good old FT Alphaville. Uh, Blockchain goes extraterrestrial, which is a story about space chain, which... FT Alphaville. Hats We're on off. Space Chain right now, I think. Uh, I thought that was a consensus project. Was, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it is. All right, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week comes from Square Crypto. Um, so Square Crypto, because the Twitter account for the uh, the kind of the $10 billion market cap company Square, who did uh, point-of-sale acquiring and, and services around that, founded by Jack Dorsey, uh, also was the founder of Twitter. Uh, this tweet reads, Steve Lee, Matt Corallo, the guy who writes these tweets, if you thought we already had the Bitcoin dream team, think again. Please welcome uh, Valentin Wallace, Jeffrey Sizzz, Eric Sosman, and somebody else to uh, Square Crypto. They come to us from Lightning Labs, Facebook Libra, BitGo, and, and Google. This completes their inaugural development team, as well as step one of their plan to grow the free open source software Bitcoin developer base with gifted new contributors. Next, deciding what their first project will be. In the spirit of open sourcing, we want to hear from you. There's no project we won't consider as long as it improves or proliferates Bitcoin. Wow. I mean, Square are like all in all in on Bitcoin and open source in a really, really interesting way. And it's almost, to me, this is the opposite end of the spectrum to where Facebook is. To the point earlier about uh, that you made, Lex, if this is just all in on like supporting open source projects, it, it's almost uncontroversial by default. But the amount of money they must be having to spend to do this is, is not insignificant. It is pretty cool. It's also, it's, it's very effective for them to, in effect, firewall this development and not reflect back into, you know, the square mothership. Well, the regulated yeah. uh, organization. I mean, I, I make no mistakes uh, and no apologies for being an absolutely massive square fanboy because uh, they, I think what they've done with their business is phenomenal. They basically started as a point of sale business yeah. and pivoted into a data business. I prefer Circle. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I prefer Square. Um, but it, it, it's you're not a sheep maximalist. I'm just kidding. I prefer okay. circle. But but I think there's a lot that that could be learned here. If you were sort of a big company looking to get into this space, uh, there's there's a way in which you can really get to the cutting edge without necessarily doing. They are doing an amazing job of not being uh, sort of branded as sellouts, right? Yeah. So they're staying as as pure to sort of the Bitcoin ethos as possible and it's it's a very fine line to tread because if they do stray a little bit, crypto Twitter will be after them. Which is an interesting point. Yeah, you might have expected this open source to be a little bit more agnostic to some of the other communities out there. So, I mean, to, to give a serious uh, point of view on that, across all the fintech venture champions that we've seen, whether it's SoFi or Square or Venmo or Betterment or N26 or Revolut, we're seeing massive rebundling, which is, I'm sure, a theme you talk about a lot. I think Square has done a really, really good job of building a unique asset there, right? Because with Square Cash, they now have the largest payments 
user base bigger than Venmo in the United States. So as far as neobanks go, they're doing pretty okay. And they got a uh, the card on that now. They as got well. a card on that, so they're essentially a bank. And of course, they have compatibility with Bitcoin. You know, it's not hard to add robo advice and insuretech and all that stuff to it out of the box with open banking. But nobody other than Square has the merchant footprint. So. I'm super excited about the stuff they're doing because to really bring digital currencies to the masses, you you need underlying economic activity and not just the capital market stuff that, that we're excited about. So uh, I hope it works. I think there are other people with the, the merchant side like Stripe, but not with the cash side as well, or that they've got the, uh, the both ends like PayPal, but maybe they're not as strong on the execution. I think they're well positioned. That wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We're also super excited to officially bring you the first glimpse of our most ambitious media project to date. For years, the story of the financial crisis has been told in isolation, the bad things that happened during it, the global fallout from it, and the effects on consumers as a result. So we wanted to tell the untold story, how UK financial services evolved out of a crisis, created a perfect ecosystem that grew into a thriving global fintech capital that we have today. We conducted over 20 interviews with some of the UK's biggest banks, regulators, and fintechs, all sharing their first-hand experiences of the changes that propelled the UK to the position as a global financial services hub. The trailer is available now on 11years.film. That's 11years.film. Head over to the website, watch it, and let us know your thoughts on Twitter at 11FS. Uh, and if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday uh, for good old Tom McDonald shout-outs and much, much more, uh, hit the subscribe button, please. All right. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Todd? R3.com, at McDTV on the Twitter. Lovely. How about yourself, Thomas? 6-group.com. And Lex. Codify.consensus.net or Lex Sokolin on Twitter. Beautiful. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com. Big thank you as always to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producers Laura, Petra, Hannah, and of course Alex, our editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.